So we are continuing this morning in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And we come to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he, had, he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send, he, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord.
So here we are in the last Sunday in October. Fall is in full swing now. And as a teacher, we're, we're moving along in, in our school year. And myself now, I'm starting to build the relationships with my classes and my students. Because the, the teacher-student dynamic isn't only about a transfer of information or a transfer of skills. There's a relationship between the teachers and the students that, that must be formed and strengthened for the students to thrive. Many of you probably remember teachers from your life. Those of you that are and have been teachers know this. And, and you think of the people that were teachers in your life that had an impact on you and your relationship that you had with them. You don't simply learn from teachers because of information they're giving you, but there's a relationship that is built in order to teach and to learn. And so for those that are disciples of Jesus Christ, you are the student or the disciple, and Jesus is the teacher or the rabbi. But this isn't just any disciple, rabbi, or student-teacher relationship. By coming to faith in Jesus Christ and submitting to him as your king, as your savior, you enter into the most profound and life-changing relationship possible. You are spiritually united to Christ by faith. He is your king, your shepherd, your bridegroom, your, your friend. The relationship of Jesus Christ to his disciples, including all of you who have faith in him, means that the eternal son of God is in you and you are in him. Being a disciple of Jesus means you enter into a relationship with him. And this relationship will shape you for the rest of eternity. In our passage this morning, Jesus is continuing his ministry in Galilee. And this is the region in the north of Judea. It's the region that Jesus was born and raised in. It's where he's done all of his ministry so far in Mark's gospel. And so far he's preached the coming of the kingdom of God. He's cast out demons, revealing his authority over them. He's healed lepers and paralytic and all kinds of sick people. He's revealed his authority to forgive sins, his authority over even the Sabbath. And now this morning, we'll see his fame continue to grow. We'll see Jesus call all 12 of his disciples to himself. And we'll also see his opposition from the religious leaders continue to increase. And through all of this, we get an answer to the question, what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus. And we'll see three different ways that people relate to Jesus. There are those that want the benefits of Jesus. There are those who reject Jesus. And there are those who love Jesus. Those who want the benefits of Jesus. Those who reject Jesus. And those who love Jesus. Our first story this morning takes place right after Jesus had healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And at the end of that story, we're told that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. And so now, starting in verse 7, we read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. 
and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus once again withdraws to the sea and and the great crowd follows him. And the people in this crowd are coming from all over the place now. From Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan River. The fame and popularity of Jesus is spreading. It's spreading out of the region of Galilee and Judea all the way to Jerusalem to the other side of the Jordan River. When the people heard all that Jesus was doing, namely healing people, casting out demons, they all were coming to see him. And it says, starting in verse 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus tells his disciples to get a boat ready because he was afraid the crowd was going to crush him. Those who were seeking to be healed by him pushed towards him because they wanted to touch him. There were so many of them, though, that he was afraid that they would literally crush him. And so he told them to get a boat ready. Then we see that whenever someone with an unclean spirit saw him, they would fall to the ground and the demon would cry out, you are the son of God. And so the demonic possession is still clearly rampant during this earthly ministry of Jesus. And I mentioned before that there's not much talk of the demonic realm throughout the Old Testament. There's next to nothing mentioned of demonic possession and even throughout church history. But throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, it's everywhere because the demons are there to oppose him. They know who he is. Their strategy is to shout out his true identity. As you can see, they're shouting out, you are the son of God. But Jesus silences them. He will reveal who he is when he's ready to reveal who he is. When the time has come for him to die, because the more he reveals about himself, the more he reveals about his identity, the more intense his earthly opposition becomes. And so as we move forward in Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we'll see different reactions to him, even in this passage this morning. There's different categories of people in the way they relate to Jesus. And the first is in this summary of his ministry that is in verses 7 to 12. One of the categories of people are the massive crowds that gather to see him. They've come to witness miracles, or they've come to be healed themselves. But that's really all they want from him. And this is the first way we see people relate to Jesus. Those who want the benefits of Jesus. The crowds or the multitudes, especially those who want to be healed, they want something from Jesus. They want what he can do for them. But they don't really want Jesus himself. They don't want a relationship with him. They don't necessarily want to follow him and learn from him and love him. There's a pastor named Kyle Eidelman, and he wrote a book called Not a Fan. In this book, he contrasts what he calls being a fan of Jesus with being a follower of Jesus. And he notes in it that 
the people in the large crowds in the Gospels come to see Jesus, but they seem to be just there for the show. They're fans of Jesus, like sports fans or music fans at a concert. And he points out that this is not the relationship that Jesus calls for. He calls for something much deeper. And there are some who are Christians and call themselves Christians today that may only be fans of Jesus. They like Jesus. They like the benefits they they can get from him. Maybe they like going to church and, and doing things, but they aren't willing to make any sacrifices on his behalf. They aren't willing to give up any conveniences or comforts. They want something from Jesus. But they don't love him. They don't want Jesus himself. Then in these crowds, there were were others who wanted the physical healing of their body. They didn't care what Jesus could provide for them spiritually. They didn't want the forgiveness of sins that he offered. They didn't want a relationship with him. They just wanted what he could do for them. So I want to ask all of you, where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Do you crave a deeper and more intimate relationship with him? Or are you satisfied of just going through the motions, enjoying some of the benefits of Jesus without the sacrifice and commitment and the love of him that he calls for? But the fans of Jesus, or those who just wanted the benefits of Jesus, aren't the only way of relating to Jesus we see here. Starting in verse 12, or sorry, starting in verse 13, you see Jesus calls his 12 disciples. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So Mark has already given us the account of Jesus calling five of his disciples, uh, Simon or Peter and Andrew, James and John and Levi, were also called Matthew here. Now Mark is is contrasting these massive crowds who who just want to see Jesus perform miracles or want his miraculous healing for themselves with the inner circle of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. And typically in, in rabbi, rabbinic schools, you would have to apply for someone to be to be a, a disciple of a particular rabbi and they would accept your application or not. But we see the disciples of Jesus didn't apply for Jesus to be their rabbi. But it says he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And we see this same idea when Jesus chose the specific accounts of of him walking up to Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. He walks right up to them and says, follow me. And then they responded. Jesus chooses them first and they respond by choosing to follow him. By choosing to give up their lives and to be his disciple. 
Now, the significance of this list is less about a list of names, but more about Jesus choosing 12 disciples. They're often referred to as the 12. And 12 is not a common number in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is establishing his, the connection between his 12 disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel. He's establishing the connection of the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, and the people of God in the New Testament, the Church of Christ. There is one people of God. He's reconstituting Israel around himself. He's showing us that Israel fulfills its identity as the people of God now only in service and fellowship with the Messiah, with Jesus Christ who has come. And we'll see Jesus will train these 12 apostles. He's tra trained his disciples so he can send them out on his behalf, doing the work of his kingdom, preaching and casting out demons, all in the name of Jesus. And then after appointing the 12, we see a brief story about his family, starting in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Mark continues to describe these crowds in a way that seems like they just keep getting larger. This time it says, Jesus went home and the crowd gathered so that they couldn't even eat. But then the family of Jesus hears this. And they try to forcefully take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. They may have been concerned with the negative attention that Jesus was attracting from the religious leaders. They may have been afraid of the consequences that could have been brought on him and his family. So they figured he must have been out of his mind to be willing to stand up to the scribes and, and the Pharisees. But it ultimately shows that they, it shows their unbelief in who Jesus was. It shows that they do not believe he was the Son of God. They don't believe he was the Messiah, the anointed King, the Christ that has come to usher in the kingdom of God. And Mark then contrasts this, or he actually adds this, another story of confrontation with the religious leaders. Starting in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem we're saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so the fame of Jesus has reached the point that the scribes decided to come from Jerusalem to see him. When they get there, instead of bowing down to praise God for the miracles that Jesus was doing, they ascribe evil to what Jesus is doing. They're saying, first, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebul actually was once the name of one of the gods of the Canaanites, but by the first century, it was used to describe the ruler of the demons. It was used to describe Satan. And we can see this in the second accusation and the way Jesus responds, by the prince of demons that Jesus cast out demons. They accused Jesus of doing his work by the power of Satan. And this brings us to the second way people relate to Jesus. There are those who reject him. The scribes came down from Jerusalem specifically to oppose Jesus. 
They weren't even like the crowds who were there to see his miracles and benefit from his healing power. They were there specifically to shut him down. And there are so many people in this world that relate to Jesus that way. People who outright reject him. Sometimes this can be subtle. It could be people saying that he was just a prophet or simply a great human teacher. But in saying that, they're rejecting the notion that he is God. They're rejecting that he is the sacrificial lamb who died for the sins of his people. They're rejecting that he performed miracles or that he was raised from the dead. People outright reject Jesus all throughout the world. And sometimes this is openly hostile, like the scribes and the Pharisees. There's people who persecute Christians or kill them. And this is the same thing they're really doing. To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. But there's also, in our culture, it's more subtle. The treating Christianity and Christians and belief in Jesus Christ as something silly or, or false. But anything other than humble submission to Jesus Christ, an acknowledgement of his lordship and who he is, believing in his salvation, is ultimately to reject him. And we see the response of Jesus to these accusations of the scribes. Starting in verse 23, he says, And he called to them, to, he called them to him and said to them, In parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus responds to them in, in parables, first by pointing out the logical inconsistency of saying that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's saying that it doesn't even make sense that Satan would be casting out demons. It would be like there's a civil war in the demon world. If this were the case, then Satan would be weakened. He would be about to fall on his own. But that's not the case. Satan is not casting out demons. Actually, Satan is the one who sent the demons to come there and oppose Jesus. Satan is the reason that the demons are even there. And then Jesus says in verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds as a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now Jesus is comparing those who are under Satan's control to the goods of a strong man. And, and this really applies to every sinner, everyone born a sinner by nature. You and I, born sinners, born following the course of this world, following Satan. And in this parable, Jesus considers all who are under the bondage of Satan to be his goods. And he's saying that his task, Jesus, in bringing the kingdom of God is to bind the strong man to bind Satan and to blunder these goods, to free those who are under the reign of Satan and to bring them under the reign of God. And that's what he's doing in exercising the demons. He, he's initiating this process. He's establishing his authority and his power to free people from the bondage of Satan, from the bondage of sin and death. And he's showing his power over Satan. He's showing his power to bind him. And he's beginning the new exodus. 
He's freeing people from bondage to sin and to Satan himself. And, and this is only the beginning of this binding process in his earthly ministry. He will bring about the ultimate defeat of Satan in his death, resurrection, ascension, and return. Jesus has come to defeat Satan and free his people, to bring about the reign of God, delivering all his people into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And then Jesus fires a warning shot to the Pharisees. Starting in verse 28, he says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this is one of the more difficult passages in Scripture. An obvious question that arises is, what is this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And over the years throughout church history, there, there really have been a number of answers. Because it seems to be saying, Jesus is saying that all sins will be forgiven if someone repents except this one. But he's not saying that even if a person repents, if they commit this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, they will still not be forgiven. If, if you look at the context, first we know that he's responding to the scribes claiming that he's doing the work of Satan. And so it's most likely that the nature of this sin is such that a person does not repent of it. Because those who commit it will persist in it. They'll refuse to admit that they are sinning. What I believe Jesus is saying is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is deliberately shutting, one eye, shutting one's eyes to the truth about Jesus. It's attributing the work of God to evil. It's not ignorance. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees were by no means ignorant men. They knew the scriptures better than anyone in their time. They rejected the word of God in the flesh in front of them. Not because it wasn't obvious who he was, but because it was hurting their reputation, hurting their agenda. And I, I think they're coming dangerously close. Jesus is warning them that you're staring down into the abyss of hell by what you're doing. A question that frequently arises with this is people asking, how do I know if I've committed this sin? What if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And I do believe first that even asking that question means there's a sign of repentance in you. That you haven't hardened your heart to unrepentance. And second, God wouldn't let his elect in his providence commit this sin. God would steer and guide someone whom he loves if you're concerned about having committed this unpardonable sin, then you're showing the signs of repentance needed to avoid this. If God has chosen you and converted you, then he will preserve you to the end. Now the final paragraph of this passage brings us back to the family of Jesus. Starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. So the family of Jesus, his mother and his brothers, came to get him. Earlier it said they wanted to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. Now we see they're actually here to get him. But Jesus uses this opportunity to teach about those who are united to him by faith. Those who are his spiritual family, his disciples. He's saying that those who believe in him have a relationship with him that is deeper than the blood relationships between parents and children and siblings. And this is the third way we see people relate to Jesus. It's those who love him. Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's speaking about the depth of the relationship between him and his disciples. Jesus is no ordinary rabbi, and his discipleship is no ordinary discipleship. Those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and commit to following him as his disciple are united to him through faith. It's true that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but it's not only about salvation. It's about having a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. It's about being spiritually united to him. As Tim mentioned last week, it was, it's about abiding in him or remaining in him, and he abides or remains in you. It's about experiencing his love for you and growing in your love for him. And how do you know that you have this relationship? Jesus tells us because you will do the will of God. You'll desire to obey him. You won't be perfectly obedient. No one is in this life. But you'll grieve and you'll hate that you fail to obey him. You'll desire to grow in obedience. As we read in the response of reading this morning from John 14... Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what separates the disciples of Jesus from the other ways people relate to Jesus. Even those that may be fans or want something from him. It's this desire to obey him. Loving Jesus will result in doing his will. As you grow in your relationship with him, you will grow in your love for him. You will grow in your obedience to him. But because you were born a sinner, you were born with a sin nature that you inherited from Adam, you were born an enemy of God, an enemy of Christ. It took the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross to reconcile you with God, to restore your relationship with God. Jesus showed the greatest love possible for you when he laid down his life for you. And he calls you to love one another. He calls you to love him. He restored your relationship with God so that you could live for him. That you would desire to love him and please him and obey him. Casting aside all your self-sufficiency, your pride, and your desire for your own glory. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you in love. That you could love him in return. By laying down your life for him and for others. That you would do his will instead of your own, sacrificing your life in this world for eternal life with him. Christ died for you that you would die to yourself in return. He brought you into the family of God that you would walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. And so if you are here this morning and you haven't come 
to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let today be the day. Because faith in Jesus Christ, through Him, you are united to Him. You come to a loving relationship with Him that will continue to grow until the day He returns. And when your relationship with Christ is fully realized and you're able to fully enjoy your union with Him spiritually and physically for the rest of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you this evening praising your holy name, knowing that it is only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we come into your family. But you sent your Son to die for us in love, that we could love him and you in return. And so, Lord, continue to bring the love of Christ into our hearts and into our lives, that we may obey your will out of love, that we will obey the will of Christ in response to the glorious gospel of salvation that you have given us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.